Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The International Telecommunications Union is heading into its plenipotentiary meeting, or as it's often referred to as the plenipot. This meeting is held every four years to select the new top management for the ITU Secretary General to confirm the common positions among the ITU member states and to plan the roadmap for key strategic and budgetary decisions for the next four years. On today's podcast, I have three guests who will walk us through the importance of the ITU to our global communications networks and the development of technologies that use these networks. The decision by the ITU around international standard setting processes have implications on both the national security and economic dynamics of the network operations worldwide. I'm joined today by Brett Schaefer, Daniel Plutka, and Dominique Filizanski. Brett is a J. Kingham Senior Research Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Daniel Plutka is the Distinguished Senior Fellow in Foreign and Defense Policy Studies and my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. And Dominique Lazanski is an expert in the area of internet policy, telecommunication standards, and cybersecurity policy, and she spends an abundance of her time in ITU study groups. As Brett and Danny point out in their recent paper about China's growing influence at the ITU, the advent of the internet has transformed how the world communicates, works, and governs, as well as lives. While the permissionless innovation around the beginning of the internet era allowed the United States to become the major powerhouse in today's digital economy, The Chinese are looking to change the growing dynamic away from private sector-led multi-stakeholder models of governance towards one with more restrictive rules and regulations of internet content and access. We talk about the current situation and recommendations to policymakers and stakeholders on how important the decisions are over the next few weeks on the future of both networks and our national security and the importance of keeping the democracy of information available to all the world's citizens. All right. Well, welcome all to Explain to Shane, everyone, Brett, Danny, um, and I want you two to get us started because you did a great report on what is going on at the International Telecommunications Union. And this is really more about the geopolitical aspects of what is going on in the space, even though, you know, I love the actual nitty gritty, but we're going to start with, you know, what is going on? There's an election coming up and why does this matter? Brett, do you want to get started? Sure. This is a uh... It's actually part of a broader picture. Uh, If you take a step back about 15, 20 years ago, uh, there was a belief um, well um, spread within Washington bipartisan that integrating China into the international system, welcoming China into the international economy would modify China's behavior, would lead China to become more like us, in essence, in the United States, Western countries, adopt our uh, values. Um, become a good par- uh, partner in the international economy, a good partner in the international system, obey the rules, appreciate the rules that we've established over in the post-World uh, War II era, uh, in essence, become one of us. That didn't work. And it's become increasingly clear over the past five, seven years that China is instead trying to shift and modify the international system to its benefit in ways that are actually harmful to the way that we believe the international system should work. And so what Danny and I have been doing over the past um, couple of years is writing a series of papers about China's efforts to uh, influence international organizations. Um, And the ITU paper that we wrote is one of those papers. And the ITU is probably one of these organizations that most Americans have never heard about. 
It, but it's incredibly important. The International Telecommunication Union is the organization that is, in essence, sets standards for a number of different areas in terms of radio frequencies, that so that radio frequencies don't interfere with one another, orbital slots so satellites don't run into one another. Uh, it establishes br- uh, policies on broadband so that cellular uh, phone frequencies are able to operate. And importantly, what it does is it sets standards or adopts standards for internet uh, for uh, internet communication and technological devices so that they can operate internationally from one country to another. And these standards, while it sounds really kind of boring to develop them, are incredibly important. They're worth billions of dollars to companies that have the patents that these standards are based on. And once these standards are set, it gives the this company that develops those standards a leg up in terms of uh, international competition because other companies are then incentivized to adopt those standards for their own purposes and their own devices around the world. So what China is attempting to do in the ITU is influence this process so that the standards for the next 10, 15, 20 years aren't European standards or US standards, but instead are Chinese standards and give their companies and their government, because in China, not everything uh, or very little is separate from the government, the economic, the technological advantages to sort of set the stage for our global economy for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So to put a little more context on this, it's about 12, 15 years ago when I was at VeriSign, my engineers came to me and said, hey, a bunch of Chinese showed up to our, our standards meeting. And I was like, don't don't they normally do that? And they said, no, they usually wait for the, the you know, the, basically the U.S. and the European entities to create standards and then they would build to them. And the fact that the Chinese started showing up around 2009, 10, 11 was really a big deal. And I was like, what does this mean? They're like, kind of, we, we, we got to pay attention to this. At the same time, uh, we used to have these big groups that would meet over the State Department and you used to bring your subject matter experts with you to these big meetings. And uh, Dominique will talk about this in just a second because all the work she does. And, uh, you know, so it used to be Cisco, um, all the big network operation companies would would bring their experts along. And the, the U.S. got away from that in about 2012, 2015, which meant Part of it was, um, and this was just one of those silly things where they said, you know, we don't want any lobbyists on trips. I wasn't actually, I mean, I never, I didn't meet the threshold, but the State Department called me and said, are you a registered lobbyist? And the time I was, and they, they said, well, you're uninvited. And they hung up on me. I never even knew who was. I was like, could have been a prank phone call as far as I know. So um, we started to lose our own expertise by our own unfortunate guidance at that point. And the Chinese very quickly came in and filled in that that void. So that's that was we saw that problem coming down extra well, I guess we saw it happening. I guess we didn't understand the the complexity or perhaps the level of that was going to be a problem. So Dominique, you spend a lot of time actually in these meetings. So give us some context as to what is currently going on. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Shane. Um just following up on your comment, what what I've seen from US companies like Cisco, for example, and and others, is that uh, when they've had a lot of downsizing in the last, let's say, 10 years, standards are the first thing to go. So so engagement from Cisco has decreased um, because it's a money, it's a cost thing, it's a budget issue, right? So as uh, Brett 
correctly said, um, there isn't a difference between the public and private sector in China. So taking Huawei or throwing Tencent or whoever it is at a standards organization will always be funded by either the government or themselves or a couple of different things. So there's a there's a really important point there about how the market and private sector works and, and priorities within that in the U.S. and in Western countries. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that. But yes, I am in Geneva this week. So this is an appropriate time. I'm at a study group called Study Group 17, which is on security. Um, and in the ITU, there are a number of study groups on security, protocols, uh, Internet of Things, um, uh, environment, very various things. Now, we have to remember that the ITU's remit in its constitution is for telecommunications. This does not include IP addressing, does not include the internet, does not include anything related to what goes over telecommunications networks. Um, and that was a choice that was made by the membership in the 80s. And, and, and that's a historical thing that happened quite a long time ago. So all these, um, all these study groups should be focusing on telecommunications. However, the remit has expanded to the point of where nothing is ever rejected anymore. And what I've been seeing over the last couple of years, especially with um, with COVID and with everything being online, uh, it's become a place for the Asian countries in particular, with a handful of African countries, a couple of Western countries, um, the US, Canada, one or two countries from Latin America, to kind of go and um, and kind of fight out the this kind of thing where you know the U.S. and the U.K. and and all of our allies and people that are aligned together are trying to prevent things from happening, so we can make sure that, for example, three GPP does five G, six G standards and not the ITU, or IETF does internet standards. I know Sorry, you're totally dorking out on the acronym. I there, am, but we're gonna but we're gonna let them slide. Okay, well, standards and multi-stakeholder environments, how about that? Um, okay. But so basically, what I would, would really say is that the IT standards is becoming an Asia regional location, right? So we're seeing China and Korea, a little bit of Japan, but basically China and, and Korea as well, um, really focusing and trying to bring, bring their national standards to an international forum to gain legitimacy, so, Danny, give us a little bit of the larger picture. Step away from the tech geekiness here. When when we talk about this, this has a lot of national security and just sort of international policy implications. What, what, when you were working with Brett, what was your kind of takeaway about this little area of the world that kind of lit up for you? Thank you, Shane. Yes, and thank you really for not asking me how 3GPP works um, in, setting five, <laughs> in setting five standards. Important. Sorry. Well, it, 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 no, no, no. It is actually vastly important. And this is really part of this. This is one of the reasons why the Chinese actually just, just to sort of uh, address the, 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 the problem that not Dominique herself raises, but that Dominique's presentation raises is that this is a lot of this is arcane. You know, it's not it's not simply arcane to it's not simply arcane to to you know, uh, uh, people who work broadly in the tech space, it's arcane to almost everybody who works outside the telecommunications space. The problem is, as all of you have said, it, this is hugely important. But then when you just look, just to sort of bring this back to the kindergarten level where I feel really comfortable, we are talking about 
China, a country of 1.4 billion people. When you have more people, your ability to impose your will inside these international organizations is much greater. You know, it is, again, you know, broad spectrum. If you want to look at how does China maintain the great firewall that enables not only them to keep out outside information, but also to police everything that goes on inside. It's just bodies. It's people. It's not It's not just AI that does the work of people. It's human beings. And this is where I think China has really done, uh, from their perspective, from their strategic perspective, a masterful job in international organizations. Then you come to the ITU where it's like you start talking. That it's not just, it's not just that the International Telecommunications Union is itself is an acronym. It is that everything inside the ITU is an acronym. And all of these study groups that Dominique referenced are also um, full of these standard setting acronyms. So step out just one sec and say, okay, what what are the what are the geostrategic imperatives here? Well, uh, the Chinese government has recognized that uh, that far from us using the global rules-based system to enmesh them in a set of rules in which it will be very difficult for them to stray without costs, what they've done is they've they've flipped the game on us and they have used that system to impose themselves inside the rulemaking of the international order so that it has become very difficult for us to fight back. And we see this everywhere. We see this not simply inside the ITU, but inside a whole variety of international organizations. Uh, Brett and I wrote about the uh, Brett and I wrote about ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. Another one where you're just like, oh my God, how do I change the channel? And yet you suddenly realize that uh, that <laughs> despite despite your firm desire to change the channel, this is how China dictates airspace. This is how China dictates, for example, what where Taiwanese planes are allowed to fly and land, where flights containing COVID vaccines need to route themselves. And similarly, inside the ITU, you've got not simply the internet, the, tele- the telecommunications aspect, you've got the satellite aspect, you've also got, you've also got um, air traffic control, which is regulated by, uh, by ITU. And a lot of the study groups inside the ITU are um, all about joining and they're private sector groups. You said the State Department used to have, you know, you there, Intel there, Cisco there, Verizon there, all of our stakeholders inside the United States. Well, stakeholders in China are not private stakeholders. They're stakeholders who are doing the bidding of the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party. And it costs money to join these groups, right? Yep. It costs $50,000 to pay to the ITU, and then about, and this is an estimate, $300,000 per engineer. You can understand why it is that the Cisco's and the Verizon's and all of these you know, guys that we see on our stock market aren't eager to go in and tell their fiduciaries, hey, you know, we have to spend you know, a few million bucks getting our engineers into this thing that we really don't want to explain to you, but it's really important. And so the Chinese have owned that standard setting because we have to pay for those privately, but the Chinese pays for the Huawei's of this world and the ZTE's of this world to send their engineers. And they have simply out talked us, outbid us, outregulated us, outsuggested us, out 
out patented us in their effort to dominate this space. And so, you know, when 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 Dominique talks about the problem of an expanding remit or, you know, what we call mission creep in the in the national security world, it's almost impossible to, for us to push back because, A, we're not paying attention most of the time. B, we don't believe in industrial policy in this country. And that goes for the most part for Democrats and Republicans. We don't like giving, you know, the Verizons of this world extra taxpayer dollars in order to be a stakeholder at the ITU. Imagine explaining that in your next political commercial. And so these are kind of the challenges that face us because, you know, everybody likes to think about this war is taking place in the South China Sea or over Taiwan or over Nancy Pelosi going, uh-uh, it takes place at this micro level and the Chinese are always there playing the game and we are not there full time. And, and another thing that is definitely at stake here is the democracy of information. So there was a, a piece this morning in, in The Guardian, I'm sure others reported about it, about how the, there have been 182 internet shutdowns by national governments in 34 countries in the last year alone. And we think that that doesn't happen because we sit on American soil and we just don't can't really think about it a lot. There's a lot of places where, you know, this information is, you know, they're, they're, they're using elements like the ITU to figure out how they can cabin off information. So one of the things which I think all of our, our listeners probably love a good political story is, you know, in the middle of all this where China really is the the, the heavy on this, Russia has a huge um, space in this. And so I want to walk through this election that's coming up because there have been a couple different people that have written about it. And including the former federal communications uh, chairman, Tom Wheeler wrote a piece about two weeks ago, that this is a very important election that no one's paying attention to unless you spend time thinking about the ITU. So um, Dominique, if you'll give us kind of the lay of the land, because everyone thinks this lovely woman, Doreen Bogdan Martin, who is a, she's a, an American citizen over currently in Geneva. She's been in Geneva for a while, but she runs something called the the ITU development. We'll just let her know that that, that allows her to run for the uh, secretary general. She's going up against a, uh, a, a Russian gentleman, um, and, and can you enunciate his name for me? Because I don't want to. Sure, uh, Rashid is- Ismailov. Ismailov. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, we'll call him Rashid. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, what is going on there? Because Americans kind of thought, "Well, we game over. We we've got Doreen on there," but and that does not seem to be the case. Yeah, sure. And and I'm looking forward also to Brett coming in with a little more detailed background with his experience as well. So Doreen Bogdan is an American uh, citizen who's been working for the IT for quite a long time. Um, four years ago, she was elected to be the director of the uh, development sector, ITUD, as it's known in the ITU. Um, this is the sector that's responsible for capacity building and best practice and, and regional initiatives and various things like that to do with telecommunications. Um, to be frank, I think personally, she's led a, you know, done a really good job at focusing um, that sector in terms of uh, reforming it a bit on um, finances, which is something the UN is uh, not quite strong at, but she's done a really good job. Uh, she's brought in a few people who are known to the ITU, but were uh, in the private sector or indeed in um, regulators in other uh, countries to help her do that over the last four years. So now she's running to be the first woman um, secretary general of the ITU ever. And uh, and she is running against Rashid, who used to work for the ITU and has also held quite senior positions in both Huawei and a company called Vion that used to be called Vimplecom. 
And so I think he's, um, you know, he's not been campaigning. He's not been out on the trail. He's not been at other ITU meetings this year. But uh, we all can see and we all know that um, he's been doing uh, through the, the Russian government. There's been quite a lot of deals that have been cut throughout Africa, probably uh, throughout the RCC, which is the former Soviet countries and and through other er- and through other areas um, that are throughout the world that are probably like Venezuela, for example, will probably vote for him. Um, he's running on a. Um, platform that would give nation states more autonomy, the ITU more control, and the hope that internet governance and all the multi-stakeholder things that you, Shane, deal with almost on a daily basis um, will come into the ITU. There's a few things going on in the next few years that that may facilitate this, a couple meetings within the UN and things like that. But it's my understanding from just talking to people in different regions that um, even though Rashid's not traveling himself for various obvious reasons, um, there are other members of uh, the Russian government that have been doing outreach in countries um, to to basically cut deals on the votes. So, you know, I'm hoping that Doreen also has been doing this and been very public and been very, and the U.S. has been quite active in promoting her throughout the year in ITU meetings and publicly. But what we don't know is what's happened behind the scenes between Russia and other countries. The the one country, one vote situation of the United Nations is something that Americans are not the best at because we don't believe in paying off our uh, politicians overtly, I guess is the best way to say it. And which is, uh, yes, Dan, you want to jump in here? No. Well, I mean, it's actually interesting. And I, I would love to be contradicted uh, by my two mates who know better than I do, Brett and, and Dominique. But ITUD is really one of the places where we have seen this most starkly. So, you know, ITUD is is development. It's about, it, 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 if you think about the, you know, inequality, it's about trying to level the playing field of inequality between uh, the United States, the developed world, Europe, and, and lesser developed countries. But the United States actually pays very, very little attention to this because, you know, we have our own programs. We've got USAID, we've got the State Department, we've got, you know, all of, we, we, we are the biggest subscribers to the World Bank. I could go on here for quite a while and, you know, billions of dollars as well. Um, and as a result, we don't pay too much attention in ITUD. Everyone else does. And this translates directly into the votes between uh, between the Chinese and the Russians and others paying attention to the development aspect of the ITU going into countries in Africa and Latin America, helping out, you know, oh, no, we're just, you know, we're just here from Moscow and Beijing. We're really here to help you out. Just as an aside, we saw how nicely they did that when they uh, built the African Union headquarters, which was a giant espionage hub for the Chinese government. Right. So. Um, but because of that, uh, and because the Chinese and the Russians are so transactional, or in this instance, the Chinese potentially on behalf of the Russians are transactional in order to stick it to us, they are going in and saying, as they do in a lot of other UN venues, hey, you know, you owe us a whole bunch of money, and we were really helpful. The Americans really didn't care about you getting this and that and the other thing. And so, you know, 
Hmm. Is it going to be Doreen, you know, that American, uh, you know, uh, a colonialist, or is it going to be this representative of one of the oppressed nations, you know, our good friend, whatever the hell his name was, they smile of. Um, and, and this is exactly, you see how much attention I pay to his commercial, even though it was quite good. But, you know, this is, this is the problem is that the voting system internally is so corrupted and Brett, and Dominique know tons about how it's not just corrupted inside the ITU, but this is how we lose votes. Yeah. And so, Brett, you have written not only about the ITU, but you had a couple of great pieces this spring about why the Biden administration is so in love with the United Nations and another one on time for the, you know, for reform in the UN, which really leads to this. It's a very similar situation of what's going on in the ITU. So can you expand on that for us? Uh, sure. The, the, uh, the Biden administration is, uh, as, as many people on the left side of the political spectrum are, um, very enamored of the United Nations, um, and they want to work through the United Nations. And their policy thus far uh, in the first couple of years of the administration has been to uh, to rejoin parts of the organization that the Trump administration had pulled out of, uh, to seek to pay arrears to the organization um, that had a, have accrued over a number of years to try and change laws to allow the United States to re-engage with parts of the organization that, uh, for instance, UNESCO uh, is an organization that the United States withdrew from and hasn't been able to pay money to since 2011 because they gave the Palestinians full membership along with other member states, which is uh, under U.S. law, prohibits U.S. contributions. They're trying to change that law to allow the U.S. to do that. So there's a lot of ways in which the Biden administration has sort of given a full body embrace to the U.N. um, and ignored a lot of the problems that are present in many of these organizations that um, in in ways which affect U.S. interests detrimentally. Um, And that's not to say that the United Nations doesn't have value and we shouldn't be engaging with it. But I think we have to take a realistic perspective perspective and portrayal of the organization and and recognize that it has many flaws to go along with the uh, with the advantages that participation and engagement can sometimes give you. Um, that being said, um, this the ITU is important because I think we've had this conversation now for about uh, many minutes now, at least 20 minutes, and we haven't actually mentioned the fact that a Chinese national is the secretary general of the ITU. Right. It has been, you know, he's, he's finishing up his second uh, term right now, which means that he has to uh, uh, leave office. But during that time period at the ITU, he has specifically, you know, uh, international civil servants, including the heads of these organizations, are supposed to take an oath in office, which says that they don't receive direction or instruction from governments or any other outside uh, entities. And yet he has over and over and over again fully endorsed Chinese policy. He has endorsed and encouraged countries to uh, get into bed with the Chinese government on the Belt and Road Initiative, its Digital Silk Road Initiative. He has, uh, when the United States raised questions about uh, security uh, of of internet systems uh, uh, under Huawei, he basically poo-pooed that and said that that was a, a distortion and um, inaccurate accusations by the United States. So in essence, just uh, uh, parroting the Chinese line in a number of different areas in direct violation of his oath of office for neutrality. And when his mail-off comes in there, he is not going to be a free actor. He is much like uh, Hulin Zhao, 
uh, is going to be acting at the behest of the Russian government because these authoritarian governments do not allow their citizens to act with the freedom of conscience and the neutrality that is expected of international civil servants. And Russia and China very closely align in the what they want the ITU to do, where they want the ITU to go, what they would like the ITU to involve itself in, in terms of internet censorship and governance and, and a number of different issues that uh, are going to be hostile to U.S. interests, policies, priorities, um, and those of like-minded countries in Europe and other areas of the world. And, and so this is very concerning. Um, having Ismailov um, elected would in essence be a third term of Hulin Zhao, potentially a fourth term after that, because these individuals tend to get re-elected once they're in office. And so this is very concerning. Uh, that being said, Danny was entirely right in that the one country, one vote process um, is uh, is challenging for the United States. Developing countries tend to uh, to stick together. Regional groups tend to stick together in their voting patterns. Uh, but there are some reasons why there is some optimism for uh, for the U.S. candidate here. One is she is currently the head of the ITUD, the development office. It's very unusual for a developed country person to head that particular sector in the ITU, which means that she's established a lot of relationships over time with these with these governments and more particularly with their representatives in Geneva. And this means that those personal relationships could override whatever the inclinations of the governments, because frankly, these are secret ballots. And the governments may tell their representatives to do one thing in the vote, but they may do a different thing when they're in the voting booth. Or they just may not receive instruction from capital and, and, and make their vote based on the relationships that they know. And Doreen has been in Geneva at the ITU for um, over 20, almost 30 years now. And Ismailov, frankly, while he's popped in, popped out, popped in, popped out, and he may be known, he doesn't have that type of long-term in-depth relationship that Doreen has with many of these individuals. So there's some optimism there. Uh, the United States also has quite a bit of influence with member states. And even though we're not quite as transactional as the Chinese or the Russians in this area, um, the fact is that a lot of these uh, developing countries are recipients of U.S. foreign assistance and the U.S. State Department uh, the, um, and the Department of Commerce going in and, and meeting with these individuals and saying, hey, we really would like you to vote for our candidate does have some influence and sway here. So I think the U.S. government has been doing what it can to try and promote her candidacy. There's reasons for optimism. But we should be pulling all, out all the stops right now because it is very, very important going forward that we do have a person that is going to respect the independence and the integrity of the ITU mission um, in place as the secretary general and not um, a person that's going to be receptive and uh, in advancing the policies and, and priorities of Russia, China and other authoritarian states. So uh, we won't go into the depth of plenipotentiary, which is coming up because we could do a whole one after this. But it is sort of the equivalent for those who haven't been in this space that I know a lot of your kids are just going off to college and many of them probably went through a fraternity or sorority rush process. It's quite similar. So they have actually have a three week meeting, which still in this day and age just astounds me. And the first week, all the big deal people, the big, you know, the heads of whatever show up and they have cocktail parties and, and they're all doing basically they're, they're going to, you know, to try to push you to go Delta, Theta, Kappa, whatever, Zeta, you know, and, and then th after all that takes place, you know, 
how is it? So make sure, correct me on this one, uh, Dominique. So is it, when does the vote actually take place? Is it the first week or the second week? The second yeah. Week? So, so in addition to the secretary general, there are other positions, the head of the three sectors and the deputy secretary general and radio board and all that stuff. So that takes place in the first week uh, in conjunction with about 300,000 different <laughs> cocktail parties. Um, what's interesting is it's round voting. So if there are more than two candidates, it has to go to a second and third round, and there has to be eight hours in between that voting. So you might have a vote at 10, and then you have to wait until six to vote again in the same election. Um, it's very, anti- I mean, it's the most amazing thing. It's extremely antiquated. Um, every uh, appointed uh, person for every country has to go up, write the, you know, the ballot out, put it in a clear plastic ba- box. They have to be counted. It's it's crazy. Um, there is other work that goes on while this happens, but it's it's pretty it's pretty intense, actually, I have to say. And it's quite long. <laughs> and then after yeah. that takes place, there's another about 10 days where the, the actual nitty gritty, the study groups you mentioned, yes. they actually, you know, the, the juntas, the big guys all leave and then the real work. Yeah, the ministers done, so. leave. They've done the cocktail parties. So the unknown in this whole situation is that the, the event is taking place in, in Romania. And I am not sure what the situation will be in terms of who is traveling. Right now, China and all Chinese delegates to every study group in the ITU are not traveling. Mm -hmm. Only people from the missions or local offices are coming. So I'm in a study group where there are literally no Chinese physically present. So that is due to continue through the end of the year. Um, It's a Chinese government policy rather than a UN-related policy. So we don't know who's going to show up. We don't know if the Romanian government will grant visas or to what extent they'll grant visas to Russia, regardless of the fact that it's the UN. So there's a lot of things at play that are kind of geopolitical more than anything else. So let's step away from the fun of the politics and talk about some of the things that you recommended in the paper, because you had some really interesting topics. And part of why this matters is you mentioned the the need to keep the Internet governance out of the ITU. So can you can just kind of talk to us about some of the things that you recommended? Because I thought you really did a great job, you know, bringing this back home. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Yeah. So um, there's going to be a lot of disgust coming up. IPV6 and numbering and, and, you know, all these crazy acronyms, I know, but basically things related to cybersecurity, to spectrum. Um, There's going to be a bit of a fight probably about uh, Starlink and, and, you know, spectrum rights in the Ukraine and et cetera, et cetera. Um, internet governance. So today, in fact, there was an interregional meeting to share discussions around internet policy ahead of this meeting for the ITU coming up. And uh, the Arabs um, and the Africans were like, nope, we don't want any other stakeholders discussing internet policy except for government. So they were very clear about where they stood versus, you know, the, the, the multi-stakeholder, the importance of the private sector and others in discussing internet policy. Um, and so the big proposal, which we haven't yet talked about, and Danny mentioned it briefly um, in, in their paper, is you know the Huawei proposal for changing what the internet looks like um, and really having more of what I would say is a telecoms approach to an internet <laughs> network. So the internet's very distributed and you know best effort and things happen and we get data. Whereas in telecoms, it used to be you pick up the phone, you 
talk to somebody on the other end, it's a one-to-one relationship in there. And the, the what's called new IP is very much um, still under discussion. And it's very much a, a telecommunications top-down um, sort of uh, approach to, to, the, to how the internet's done. And Brett, you mentioned in your your uh, recommendations that we should counter China's China's interference in the standards process. So we heard how that kind of came about. How do we detangle or or walk that back? Sure, and it's not easy because this is essentially based off of a willing participant process, right? Um, anybody who can register as a sector member and participate in the standard setting process within these different study groups and, and so forth, you just have to pay your freight. Um, and China has been flooding the zone by, in essence, subsidizing and encouraging their non, and I, I'm doing air quotes here, non-government uh, participants in this process, whether that's um, university academics or whether that's um, uh, uh, businesses that are based in China that have equities involved in the in whatever the standard setting process uh, under consideration is, and uh, and and Danny mentioned how expensive it is for these individuals to go and and be in part of this process, um, and so because China is subsidizing both the companies, the universities, and also subsidizing the travel, the participation, and the expenses of the process. Um, they're able to send a lot more people um, to these uh, to these different organizations to participate. And the United States needs to work with the uh, consider different options for uh, lessening the cost or the burden for U.S. companies to also participate in this process. And Danny and I recommended one of the things that we should consider here is making the cost of participation uh, tax exempt for the organization. In essence, just allowing them to uh, to write off the expenses of the of the participation as a legitimate business expense, to allow them to participate more fulsomely and counter China, uh, which does so in a far more direct and uh, in um, uh, industrially, uh, what was it? What was the term you used, Danny? Uh, industrial policy, um, in terms of supporting. I believe that's the one. Yes, right. <laughs> Even though after the pass of the Chips Act, we're all having to kind of eat our, our words a little bit on that one. But yeah, I, gener- I <laughs> well, generally do agree with that. But yeah. So, so the what do you specifically? You have recommendations for the current or the future administrations on on some corrective thoughts on this. Can you walk us through those? I mean, look, uh, they're all they're all exactly uh, uh, as you would expect. Uh, but I think I think look, I think one of the the most important things for people to understand is how this infiltrates, uh, dominates your everyday life, right? Um, it's not just your phone, right? It's not just your 5G tech. It's not just the plane you get on. It's not just your air traffic control. It's not just your satellite, your satellite TV or your satellite provided internet, uh, which is crucially important in some areas that don't have that don't have the kind of broadband that we do. It's um, one of the examples that, that, that Brett and I gave in the paper is um, it's global entry. You know, how about having a system uh, that would uh, allow Chinese technology embedded into your passport recognition for when you enter and leave the country? Uh, how about TSA? You know, how about the Chinese or the Russians or any bad actor able to access information about every single aspect of your life? Let's get even more granular. What about 
about your baby monitor? You know, what about the internet of things, right? Your ring doorbell. This is the kind, this is what's at stake. And, and given the magnitude of what's at stake, our rather blasé government attitude has been, you know, a little bit troubling. It's not just, you know, Brett mentioned the politicization of the ITU under Hulin Zhao. That's one of the elements of it, but also bolstering the independence of the ITU. You know, we kind of act like this is really an organization that just doesn't matter that much. And when we say we hope that Doreen is getting the kind of backing that Ismailov is getting, the fact that none of us actually know that is a little bit worrying. The internet governance that both Dominique and Brett talked about is another factor where we just have to we just have to firewall this off and say, no, you know, we like the grassroots internet system that we have. We don't want a Chinese Communist Party or a Russian Party dominated IT system. Uh, you know, the standards is, is everything we just talked about, helping company, companies become part of the standard setting. But I think the biggest thing here and the one that, that underpins everything we've said is have a credible alternative. You know, what, uh, Brett, your and my former boss used to say, you can't beat something with nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been our attitude is, oh, that's bad. You shouldn't do that. And the answer is, oh, what should we do? And we're like, well, you know, we really want you to think for yourself. And we're like, oh, okay. That's uh, a problem. Mm-hmm. Brett, do you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I think uh, Danny went over it. It's all about... Uh, ha- hopefully having leadership at the ITU that is going to be independent and preserve the independence of that uh, that organization from uh, a continuation of the Chinese influence that has been apparent and omnipresent under the current Secretary General. It's about um, making sure that the internet remains outside of sole government governance, which is something that both Russia and China are advocating. Uh, and the multi-stakeholder model, as uh, I'm, I'm assuming your, your your listeners know about this because yeah. it's explained the same thing, um, is far from perfect. And and we saw that during the uh, the whole transition from uh, from U.S. contractual relationship with ICANN to independence there. Um, but nonetheless, it is far superior to what would be the case if it were just a government um, uh, oversight and governance of the of the internet. It's about countering China's influence in the standard setting process, enabling U.S. and uh, and other uh, companies' participation on an equal footing inside uh, the ITU standard setting process. It's about offering credible alternatives to China, and that is, um, you know, right now China and Russia are going around the world, and they are in essence subsidizing at um, very low cost the. Um, the establishment of a number of IT uh, networks in developing countries around the world. The United States says that's bad, that's a security risk, but we're not really countering China's efforts in this area. And um, for those of your listeners, maybe a small sliver, who know what the uh, Development Finance Corporation is, Congress passed this uh, and created this organization as a successor to the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, specifically to provide a financing alternative to these Chinese um, efforts. And yet it's not really doing that. It's not confronting China in these areas which are vital to U.S. interests and uh, blunting Chinese efforts to try and influence and dominate these countries. And because it's not just about the vulnerabilities that Danny outlined. It's also about sort of establishing de facto standards in developing countries from the ground up. 
You know, we talked about how at the ITU they established standards to these study groups. But if China's around the world and there are 120 countries adopting Chinese standards from the ground up, those countries have an incentive to take that uh, perspective and advocate for it inside the ITU and these study groups as well. So China is not only trying to influence the process from the top down, it's also trying to influence the process from the bottom up. And the United States needs to recognize that uh, potential vulnerability and address both issues. Tony. Yeah, and just to really drive home these points, the reason why China and Chinese companies are in the ITU is because they, um, the WTO enables the, you know, there are no trade barriers through a WTO agreement with the ITU and ISO and IEC, and that either for that further enables these um, these standards to be, you know, pushed out as Brett, as uh, Brett said, pushed out to other uh, developing countries. Couple things though, just to bring it home to everybody, the very companies that have been blacklisted by the US are the ones that I have seen and worked with in the ITU, right? So like Hikvision and other surveillance companies that are being used against the Uyghurs developed and standards that are recommendations within the ITU. Think about that from a human rights perspective. And that's something that civil society has been quite you know, outraged about. The other thing that I wanted to say that's really, really important is following on from Brett and Danny is we really need to bolster the multi-stakeholder approach, right, to to standards making in other organizations that allow full participation for 6G and beyond, for other parts of the internet, whatever it might be, but that needs to be our full focus and support while hopefully Doreen will limit and focus the remit of the ITU from this catch-all that it is now to a very focused place on spectrum, on international telephone numbering, and on satellites, and on a couple of other things. That's all it should be working on, really. And it shouldn't be like all over, you know, machine learning. And in fact, there's going to be a new uh, focus group, which is just like a group that gets together within the ITU before it becomes a, like, appropriate study group on the metaverse, right? Why would the ITU want to do that as ITU members on the metaverse, right? Which is a which is a private sector thing. Think about that too. So we really need to think about focusing on, you know, really strengthening the the other alternatives and and focusing on a multi-stakeholder approach to interoperability for standards. Right. You're, and as Danny mentioned earlier, there's a lot of mission creep. I mean, you have to keep pushing back and tell them that they're in the wrong wrong place for those decisions. You guys, thank you for all the wonderful work you do in this space. And September is is going to be very exciting. So I hope everybody pays attention. We'll put a link in the show notes to your study and some other information around this. But uh, I just want to thank you for being guests on Explain to Shane and keep doing what you're doing because it's important and there's a lot at stake. Thank you very much, Shane. Thank Thanks you for having us, Shane. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.